Hello, and welcome to Forefront 360, where we have conversations at the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. Today, in this special episode, we have with us Jason Barber. Hi! Hello! Howdy! And Abby Sitterly. Hi there! And then Forefront co-founder Nate Mancini. Hello! And myself, Rich Chrisman. Jason and Abby are both Rochester natives that have started this awesome podcast at the intersection of Christian themes and the art of film. Will you guys tell us a little bit more about this? First, what's the podcast called? Sure. Well, it's called Sacred Obscura, and what we're essentially trying to do is map out theological themes in film. Uh, So we don't want to particularly take one angle regarding film, so not necessarily something that's um, explicitly Christian in its marketing, but um, pretty much we're saying that the longing for God is in a universal theme in art. So, of course, we want to trace that and sort of figure out, you know, how we can step outside of our comfort zones and learn a little bit more about um, the dance between God and the human condition. And we just want to explore some of the visual language that directors use to kind of talk about that language. You know, there's so many different ways in which we kind of look at cinema, and cinema is, in a way, a kind of like uh, like an artistic and creative metaphor, visual metaphor for sometimes how we look at prayer or meditation or contemplation or some of our biggest fears and insecurities. And I think a lot of times directors deal with these deep, like spiritual um, themes that we we really kind of want to explore and kind of figure out and kind of go down some interesting tangents and rabbit holes and... Like, explore just different approaches. In the movies we're going to talk about, they're going to range from, you know, the art house cinema to classic cinema. Who knows, maybe horror, mm-hmm. like, uh, to comedies. So we're, we're trying to figure out where does that kind of, mm-hmm. like, language, where we can see those little maps of God mm-hmm. throughout the cinema. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Will you be doing all of the Marvel movies? No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Aren't there like 32 of them? Yeah, something like something that. Something like and that. Yeah. growing. Black Widow coming out. But uh, one question before we go any further. I'd love to know, where did you come up with the name? And what does that mean specifically? I think the title we came up with definitely kind of goes back to the history of cinema. Uh, with the idea of the camera obscura. And then mm. dealing with the sacred language that we're talking about. And sacred words and imagery. And I think that's something that when, <laughs> when Abby suggested that, I was like, that's it. That's the word. That's like, because yeah. it, it, it clicked in my head of, you know, growing up at like studying film in college and, you know, hearing about the traditional camera obscura, which was the first way we got, saw film. We saw people mm-hmm. like see an image mm-hmm. that wasn't, that wasn't like something they were seeing with their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I think this is something that we want to talk about because it's like, it's the spiritual language that we're seeing with our eyes, but it's something deeper. That makes total sense because I just had the light bulb moment uh, personally because I've heard the name. Uh, in the past before recording this but it didn't something photographic was like bouncing around in my head couldn't remember what the obscura was standing out to me and as soon as you said camera obscura I was like oh of course that's it (laughs) it's also because like the camera obscura would flip the image and a lot of these films in ways flip our interpretation of our own faith and our Mm -hmm. own language and how we talk about it and I think that's something that I just you're just saying that like when you talk about photography and thinking that it's Mm -hmm. in my head like it does it really a lot of the films we're talking about we put on our list Kind of flip your interpretation of definitely some of them are more provocative in nature, mm. um, but sometimes you need to be pushed outside of your comfort zone a little bit so that you can see in a, I don't know a different light essentially the, your own heart and reflection and your own faith and seeing how to sort of navigate all of those different um, d- 
dynamics in a way. Mm-hmm. So that's the really great thing about art is that it pulls you outside of yourself. And sometimes that's necessary for spiritual growth. Absolutely. Just a little shout out real quick. I don't know if you guys are uh, loyal listeners. You may have heard as far back as 2017, Jason was a uh, special artist interview uh, in the spring of 2017. Speaking of... I actually talked to him at your first conference. You did. Also, yeah. he was a uh, speaker at Forefront Festival 2017 here in Rochester at Grace Road Church. Mm-hmm. But uh, Forefront Festival is headquartered in Rochester, New York. And there's a connection between Rochester and cameras and mm-hmm. Jason. So Happy here also just wrote a really awesome post for your blog. Absolutely. About, uh, Madeline. about Madeline Engel. So yeah. my connection with, with, with film is... I'm just a Kodak kid. I grew up by the park. My, you know, my dad, my grandfather, and my great grandmother all worked at Kodak. So I have you know three generations of, of Kodak in my blood, and I have asthma, so that's probably related to Kodak as well. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I think uh, thank you Kodak for all yeah. that. So that's the negative it's, it's side. It's literally in my blood. It's literally, <laughs> literally part of my DNA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I you know I I do photography on the side. So awesome. Sweet. Well, um, so the first episode of Sacred Obscura, you guys um, have talked about the film First Reformed, which came out in 2017 and is starring Ethan Hawke, Amanda Seyfried, and Cedric the Entertainer. This is a movie that um, I, as soon as I saw back, I think I saw the trailer like maybe on YouTube or something when it first came out, and as soon as I saw that there was a movie called First Reformed, and within the first couple seconds of the trailer, I saw this guy in, you know, um, like a vicar's collar, and as a, yeah, and as, as uh, and per- personally, I am um, uh, part of the Anglican Church of North America, and I am a huge nerd for uh, traditional Protestant mores, so as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, this is a movie for me, so um, I got really excited about First Reformed from the first couple seconds of the trailer. Um, so really cool to hear that you guys started with that. I think it's a fantastic movie. But um, is there anything you guys want to kind of say about the episode plugging that before we kind of talk more about the film? Yeah. Uh, I definitely geeked out over the film when I first saw it. Yes, you did. So we were trying to decide which uh, film to cover for our first episode, and we thought of a bunch of different things. Yeah. And Jason was like, well, you won't shut up about First Reform, so why don't we just say First Reform? And I was like... True. That's great. And I also was sending her secretly like videos and YouTube videos on the director. Like I was just mm-hmm. sending her, like, read this, check this out, look at his talk on this and talk his talk on spirituality. So I was already in like when mm-hmm. you suggested first reform, I'm like, Man, I've been circling this movie but I haven't seen it yet. So I kinda had to kinda dive in as well. But mm-hmm. like I I've been wanting to watch it. I had been on my queue for at least uh, like eight, six, seven months on Amazon. You just needed a kick. I just edge. needed that push because I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to be, I was going to sit there and I was going to watch it and I was going to be like, ugh. I was going to be like, yeah. ranting about it. You were like, you need to watch this. This is what we're doing for the, for the podcast. I'm like, okay, let's sit down. You know, and I had already knew everything about it. I had watched every aspect of the movie. Yeah. So I, you know, so I, I was coming in educated with what I was expecting. Yeah. Hey, this is Nate Mancini breaking into this podcast from the future. At this point, we're about to dig into our reactions to the film First Reformed. As I've listened back to this conversation, we don't spoil any major plot points about the film, but we do talk a lot about the style and themes and give some examples of how those play out. So if you've been wanting to watch this movie and want to go in fresh, I'd suggest pausing the podcast now and coming back after you've seen the film. 
But I'm guessing for most of you who haven't seen this film, you probably don't know whether or not you want to watch it. And I think this conversation will give you a good sense of whether it's a film that you should see. So if that sounds good to you, keep on playing. We're about to get to our thoughts on First Reformed. I mean, you can listen to our podcast and you'll hear exactly how we feel about the <laughs> movie. To do so. You know, yeah. but yeah. like, we're kind of curious about what you guys felt. I know you, hey, you were saying like you, you have some controversial thoughts yeah. on this movie. So I'm kind of curious. Cool. I'm really curious. Like I'm kneeling forward, people, if you want to understand. I'm that curious. All right. So let's hear from <laughs> Nate first. What did you think, Nate, of First Reformed? Yeah, so I think this is a it is a controversial film just in itself. It is polarizing. It's a hard movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a movie that deals with depression. It deals with suicide. Deals with uh, the church in in some polarizing ways. And so I think that it's it's a difficult film to watch, and particularly difficult for Christians because, um, spoiler alert, I don't think it's super like rah 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 about the church. Just to say some some positive things about it, I think that it is incredibly well directed and it gives a real sense of kind of unease to the viewer that leads you to think about deep questions and so like like Paul Schrader talked about how he used the the kind of four by three aspect ratio to to have this claustrophobia to the film Um, he talked about how he you know used these like long shots and stable camera that it's just it's very awkward for the viewer where you're hoping that there's going to be a cut and the editor is going to like tell you what to think and Mm -hmm. instead the camera just stays on what's happening and, and you're forced to kind of just look into the details of what's happening on screen and in the mind of these characters and so i think as a film it's it's impeccably well directed it's it's different than any other movie you watch these days it's something different and special um i think that it uh it really knows what it's doing in that regard incredible acting i mean Mm -hmm. i mean ethan hawk is incredible in this movie um if if you didn't think he was good before you'll you'll probably change your mind after seeing this movie there's going to be noticeably a common thread in our podcast because most movies we've we've talked about there's at least three on our list that have Ethan Hawke in it. It's true. Wow. He's a running theme. And it's not even it's not even like we both we both wrote up list and like both of us had more Ethan Hawke movies in it. <laughs> so like I'm like, ooh, before movies. Oh, you're like, like when I think of my favorite actor, I don't automatically think Ethan Hawke either, yeah. but apparently I do. Uh, yeah, hmm. apparently quarter hour both our lists were like Ethan Hawke's up there. Just by I, accident. I think it's just I think it's just because yeah. of choice in directors, him and Richard Linkletter yeah. and you know Paul. You know, so I like think boyhood and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But they deal with these themes. Yeah, they deal right. with these common stories. But I like, I actually like what you're talking about that kind of long, uncomfortable shot because that is. So the direct, the director is Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader. <laughs> He's a screenwriter, taxi driver. He is the director of American Gigolo. He he also wrote a very controversial movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. He was a screenwriter for that, um, but uh, we'll wait till episode twenty-five five to kind of <laughs> deal with that because that's oh, going to wow. be a hotbed. Uh, a little bit, uh, yeah. but like he he wrote the book at the age of twenty-six out of college on transcendental cinema, and that's a right. staple of transcendental cinema. It's those long, uncomfortable, sometimes meditative thoughts mm-hmm. on a scene, and it's like you're, you're sitting there going, "Like, why am I looking at an empty doorway?" And then all of a sudden, you're like, "Oh." What does the doorway mean? Yeah. What does this mean? It's like your brain, because sitting there looking at an image in a, of, a, of a sparse room makes you think, because you're so used to like being told the story. Mm-hmm. And then 
his like saying, no, I'm going to let you figure that out. I'm going to let you really explore. There's a depth in that There's simplicity. There's a depth in the yeah. simplicity of it. And that that's something that like he, in his book, he talks about directors who did that. Like Robert Brisson, like Brisson, Dreyer, Uzo. How many names can we put? Like Brisson. There's a movie There's a movie that I think you guys, if you have a chance to see it, Diary of a Country Priest, and there's so much similarities hmm. between first performances. If you ever get to watch that movie, and then the other movie was Odette. Odette. So yeah. if you watch those two movies, you'll completely understand like where the influences come from. Not that you mm-hmm. shouldn't watch first performance. Yeah, you yeah. should watch. Yeah. But I'm just yeah. saying, like, here's here's the extra drugs they give you. It's because you're gonna get one drug. Cause it's, you know, first performance, mm-hmm. the intro. You yeah. know, right. It's Nate, a bad Nate, metaphor. Nate, what are your thoughts <laughs> on uh, the more critique aspects of the film? So I think one one thing that I just I just think about is we have kind of a cultural narrative around the church mm-hmm. that is basically church is either like outdated, it's a thing of the past, or it's like corrupt. Like it's really popular, but it's a bad thing for the culture. And I think that this film almost like directly depicts the church in that way where you have two ways in those two ways where you have first reformed which is like this old defunct church like formerly may have meant something but now means nothing because nobody goes there Mm -hmm. and then you have abundant life which is like okay a lot of people go there and it's very successful but oh like they're in bed with the oil barons and so they're corrupt Mm -hmm. and so i think that's kind of an unfortunate consequence of it is that I think for a thoughtful Christian, this film has a lot of good things to dig into, but I think for someone who's not a Christian or is kind of skeptical of the church, this film will just kind of reinforce Mm. what they already think about the church in kind of a cynical way. I think there's definitely um, some really true points that you point out there. That's great. Um, For me, it was sort of like, I didn't necessarily focus on those two aspects of it. It was more looking at the film from the sense that Paul Schrader treats Christianity with like a uh, gravity that I hadn't noticed in a lot of other films. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. So that may have blinded me <laughs> to those other things well, to, yeah. to see that finally somebody is treating Christianity with sort of the 2000 years of theological weight that mm-hmm. is behind it. And that and sort of deserves. respect. Yeah. yeah. That it's sort of garnered over the years. And yet that has been shelved for even, and I think those are, definitely stereotypical representations of both the dichotomy of modern Christianity. Yeah. But a lot of the more contemporary stereotypes are even worse than that too. So even to see that was sort of a reduction from what I'm used to. So I was yeah. like if I can jump like in right here. You can't ignore it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think this movie underlines very well the reality that Christendom as a whole or Christianity as a whole is incredibly splintered today and when we look around a lot of us very easily can say you know this person is a christian this person is a christian this is a christian church that's a christian church you know whatever it may be Mm -hmm. um and like even on this podcast we say you know this is the intersection of the arts and the christian faith and we have a definition for what the christian faith means but there are other people that claim the christian faith as well who may have a different definition and one thing that's really interesting to me is the fact that the movie very clearly depicts these two styles of churches. But one thought that kept striking me throughout the film is the fact that 
yeah, we got First Reformed, which, like Nate mentioned, excuse me, is um, this small sort of aged church that's like kind of like timing out. Mm -hmm. And then you get this big mega church where, you know, a lot of people are going and they got a lot of money and, you know, they're hip and all that stuff. And those are very real aspects of the church. Right. But I feel like even beyond those two symbols of Christianity, there are numerous more as well. And I, th and I thought that even those two depictions were a simplification of the fact that so many Christian groups, let me rewind a little bit, I guess what I'm saying is that the fact that there's all this discussion between the world and the church. Mm -hmm. But if we back up from the discussion between the world and the church, there's a tremendous amount of discussion that needs to happen within the branches of the church. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of I... If there's any like big theme or lesson that I personally pulled from the movie, it's like I left the film thinking that there needs to be way more dialogue between Christians, like of different types of churches yep. and yep. different types of people and different, and just the fact that like we sort of cloister ourselves. Even sure. so, obviously, people of any religion tend to cloister themselves away from people not of their religion. But even within Christianity, I feel that we tend to cloister ourselves to tremendously, de denominationally, and then even within large churches. Within, even within the community of our churches, like I don't want to do, say, yeah. I don't want to be part. You know, like there's, I've in the past helped organize events for churches, and you know, taught the pastors like, hey, why don't we do it with this church? No, I don't agree with them spiritually. Oh, I don't agree with them theologically. And then you're just sitting there going, like, yeah, but we're literally a mile apart from each other. Mm -hmm. And like, nope, nope, you know, and you're sitting there kind of going like. We need to have these dialogues. And I think, like, you're bringing up some clear points both of you guys were talking about, but uh, is that, like, these two churches represent this kind of age we live in that everything is certain. And that people right. are certain for certainty in politics, in every aspect of their lives. Our generation is obsessed with the idea that we only can find a certain controlled aspect of life if we choose one image or another. And this is saying, no, God's way more complex than this. Yeah. You know, like our spirituality, our faith is way more complex than this. You know, like. He's Lord of our faith just as much as he's Lord of our doubt. Yeah. And it's only when we bring those things to him and not cloister them away that they become, you know, actually rife spiritual ground. Mm -hmm. um, that's the thing that really stood out to me with the film was the dichotomy of faith and doubt was also um, both an and instead of this either or sort of uh, dialogue that we've entered into in the last hundred years as, as yeah. a religion. Um, and I felt that the spiritual honesty that was conveyed in it was so refreshing. I mean, you have a lot of um, contemporary outright Christian film that sort of says there's no such thing as, as doubt, and if there is, it's very easily explainable. And or prayed away. Or faith. Or Everything's prayed away. Mm -hmm. And then, to, so to have that sort of message, which is maybe the more prosperity gospel side of it, but then to also have um, the message that says, you know, there's creeds are not necessary. Orthodoxy isn't necessary. Having any sort of outright theological firm foundation, which mm -hmm. is scriptural, right, right. is unnecessary. Then I see that on the other side. So to hold both of these up and say there's something meritous about both of them. Yeah. And in order to actually pursue God with authenticity, you have to say... Lord, here is both of it. Mm -hmm. Here's both sides of my my faith right. and my doubt, my existential longing, my brokenness, and help help my unbelief, help me figure it out. And mm -hmm. I think that it did a really incredible job of portraying that honestly. Mm -hmm. 
It's really well put. So one other thing that I thought was interesting about this film is that it has not a, there's not a lot of like spiritual imagery in it, but occasionally yeah. stuff happens that's like very spiritual in nature that kind of takes you out of the world of the movie and takes you out of like the here and now something happens and you're like, mm-hmm. well, that's, that's strange. Um, there, there are at least a couple sequences like that, that all of a sudden, you know, there's been no music and now there's music. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's been just, just these kind of long steady shots. And now there's like these very kind of artistic shots. The floating. Different things are yeah. happening. The floating. You are literally um, like nailing the definitions of transcendental cinema. <laughs> yeah. You don't realize that like, you're like, you've read his book before you've read his book. <laughs> like, these I are mean, all the, these are yeah. all the staples of that type of cinema. Yeah. So like you have an Ebersong movie, you have an Dryer movie, you have it in these like, even in Scorsese, in many ways, like in Last Temptation or in Silence, he's trying to deal yeah. with these kind of those exact shots. Like, there's spiritual images, but then they're later. Or they're, they're kind of referenced small. Like, there's controlled imagery. And I think, I actually think, like, there's some ways, of, what I observed out of it is that there is still a very Catholic language, like visual language that they're using, because there's a sense of that monastic imagery that you mm-hmm. see throughout the film. And I think that's something that, like, as Protestants, we don't have that visual language in cinema. Right. And, it, like, a lot of a lot yeah. of directors that are Catholic I feel like we've have, that understand, they have, that. have that understanding. They have that visual language. They mm. get that visual language. That's why we talk about Scorsese. That's why we talk about Hitchcock. These are Catholic directors, you know, who grew up in Catholicism that, like, yeah. you could see yeah. they, they understood that. They understood the, the, this language better. I think the last time that I saw asceticism in film was The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> Yeah, and that was portrayed almost farcical yeah. in a way. It was almost like, look at this, you know, insane radical kind of thing, mm-hmm. clearly unstable. When that was actually, a, you know, a Catholic practice for many years. Which is so strange because if you kind of look at our culture today, in, asceticism has kind of returned, but in a non-religious context, hmm. like yeah. in the sense that, like right now, it's very hip to forego things that give you pleasure, like going on the keto diet or whatever it may be for like, you know, <laughs> for a few people. Yeah, no, but, um, yeah, I eat bread all the time, but I spend a lot of time in with people that practice certain meditative practices. And I think it's really interesting that in completely divorced from any sort of, um, religious context, it's become very hip in our culture right now sure. to, um, meditate and practice asceticism and you know, spend a lot of time trying to connect with things that are bigger and more ancient than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's really interesting that in our the same culture that is kind of championing championing these things today is also telling us that a church like First Reformed needs to like go in the corner and die. Yeah, right. You know, which is which is so well, interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that people are interested in spirituality and they're interested in kind of exploring the spiritual realm, but they're not interested in, like you were saying, creedal Christianity. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing that's kind of solidly Christian or kind of, kind of pinned down to something particular. And, and that is something that I, I thought was worth just talking through with you guys. Like in this movie, you do have kind of moments of the kind of spirituality breaking out. But it's not, like, Christian in nature. There's nothing about it that's like, oh, this is kind of, like, demonstrating something that, you know, Christians know to be true about the spiritual realm. It's more of just kind of, like, general things happening. 
and I, I think that there's there's a danger here that I've seen in some like film and TV shows where like like I watched Netflix's The Last Kingdom, and this has different kind of competing spirituality. And basically, you have these kind of barbaric Danes, and then you have these like Christians who are like basically Catholic. And the Catholics like pray and they have all these beliefs, but nothing ever confirms their beliefs. Like from the show's perspective, they are just crazy. But the Danes have these spiritual beliefs, and stuff in the show confirms their beliefs. So, like, they'll believe something, like, they have to do something, and then some spirit will leave somebody or whatever, and they'll do it, and then you'll see it happen on screen. And you're like, oh, they were right. Or, like, the Danes will, like, raise someone from the dead. And, like, oh, like, their, like, ritual worked, but the Christians couldn't do it. And so there's kind of this subtle thing that says, like, yes, there's a spiritual realm, but it's not like what, it's not like what the Catholics say or yeah, like what not the Christians like the church, say. Not, not like, yeah. like, like the God of the Bible or anything, but like there is a spiritual realm and we'll have to figure out what that is. And that's what I wonder about this film is like, on the one hand, it has all of these themes of, about Christianity and it features all these Christians, but then the moments where anything kind of breaks out in the film and happens that, that you go, wow, what's that? It's not, right. it's not anything that confirms their beliefs. It's something that's like... It's arbitrary. Carnal, it's arbitrary or arbitrary yeah, or like yeah. has to do with yeah. climate change or it's like so it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just I wonder if in some ways this film may subtly undermine the things that we hope that it promotes I think that's a great thought definitely uh, what it most represents to me was a lot of Flannery O'Connor's fiction mm-hmm. um, in the sense that I mean she's quoted as saying you know people think that the cross is an electric blanket well faith is an electric blanket but it's really the cross right like it's this torture device which is the symbol of our faith it's not something comfortable yeah to point yeah <laughs> definitely it's not something comfortable um, so what Flannery O'Connor does best in her work is she essentially shocks the reader because she's not speaking to anybody who's necessarily already Christian. She's speaking to somebody who understands the basic conversation that's occurring in the film. Well, in her writing also, these characters, they understand the conversation, but they don't necessarily have the words for it. And I think the way that First Reformed really performs well is it bridges that gap of saying, yeah, there's something going on that might not actually be in your vernacular at the moment, but what is most telling and O'Connor does this really well also, is she uses these um, climax moments that are really just these decisive inbreaks of grace, which, okay, if faith is like the cross and it's violent and it's not necessarily you know, comfortable, of course the inbreak of God ambushing a life, to speak with reform terms, you know, moving in and sort of, you know, what's the <laughs> like irresistible grace, yeah, irresistible, irresistible grace, grace yeah. of that invading into a person's life well of course that's not going to look like anything less than an earthquake and so you have these moments throughout the film um, and the asceticism I think is one of those moments as well as the climax where there is a dramatic dance that is occurring and so while it doesn't necessarily I agree with you speak to anything that is explicitly creedal Christianity in very specific terms it does speak I think to the underlying current of spiritual unknowing but also that enticement which is the spirit at work in the life of somebody who may be a believer mm-hmm. i mean i think like you, like you said there's aspects of this movie that shows that grace is painful it hurts it is a death in itself as bernhofer said you know you must die to it's a physical death sometimes and an emotional spiritual death 
And I think that's where it's illustrated. And it's not. I think sometimes when we look at when we look at films, we want it to have these common core Christian, like credo Christian ideals. And I think what this movie does is say, okay, what does grace mean? What does this mean? What are these ideas? Really, let's explore these smaller aspects of Christianity. You might not get answers. You may not get answers. You may. What does doubt look like in faith? Like, what does this like actually look like? You know, and. I think that's something that's so interesting is is creating that 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 conversation in us that we're actually having right now mm-hmm. is that conversation of going like is it okay to, for us to, as creatives to explore these one idea it's not trying to create an underlying overlap message saying this is Christianity this is the cores of Christianity no saying okay but what is grace what does it mean to die to oneself what it means to physically die to emotionally die to have these insecurities and this like look at the world in a way that's not black and white yeah Yeah. to take that on i think also it is asking it can ask the question rather what does a more explicit christian film look like you know in a creedal sense because we have a lot of you know typical um christian films but do even the more outright ones speak to that sort of like creedal foundation Mm -hmm. Which and that's debatable. And they're often extremely shallow. Yeah, there's there's right. sermonettes. Yeah. that's the, mm-hmm. they they are. Yeah. Sometimes I think I had a pastor once time tell me recently. He's like, you know, it's it's kind of ironic that you know the prosperity gospel. Like you don't have pastors talking about the prosperity from the pulpit, but man, they're talking it from the cinema. Like mm-hmm. these Christian movies yeah. are literally Absolutely. just the prosperity gospel Absolutely. reworded, right. and uh, just in a nice entertaining fashion that you can get right. you know half a million people to go see. So yeah. if we hold that up on one end, and then at the other we hold up First Reformed and say, okay, it's not saying anything necessarily creedal, but it has a depth to it. How as Christian artists can we approach screenwriting and film and say, how can we bridge the two? How can we maintain the gravitas of asking honest and sometimes painful and uncomfortable questions, while at the same time maintaining the orthodoxy of our faith, which is the foundation that we build upon. You can't move mm-hmm. unless you have a firm foundation that you rest on. So yeah. I think the combination and the marriage of those those two ideas can has a lot of potential for really, really good Christian filmmaking. Almost like one kind of film is abundant life and one is first reform. Yes, It's harder for us to look at first reformed because we look at it and show our own doubts and our own insecurities yeah. and our own fears. While Abundant Life saying, don't worry, all's good, just just love Jesus. Well, it's even yeah. in the name, too. Like, Abundant Life is selling you an abundant life. You know, it's right. like, oh, like, you're going to have this life that's full of your best happiness. Life. It's actually even yeah, interesting. Yeah, live your best uh, life now. Yeah. He's even layering it in the names of the act, of the actual characters. Mm-hmm. The name of Subject the Entertainer's character is Joel Jeffers. Mm-hmm. Robert, like, it's named after two mega church. Joel uh, Olstein yeah. mm-hmm. and Robert Jeffers, who are all both yeah. prosperity gospel preachers, right. you know, like, and you know, so like the character and the pregnant wife is named Mary, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know. So it's trying to they're layering these images in our head, in our heads because, like, you know, they're just saying here, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> should we move on? Sure, yeah, let's definitely. move on. Yeah. So, have you guys seen any good movies lately that have sort of, like, theological themes in them? So, there's not a specific film that's jumping to mind, but one thing that I will say is I'm the type of person that I tend to find 
uh, Christian themes in almost everything. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's true. That I think that that just echoes the fact that God um, exists everywhere, and I think that there are truths that are ingrained into all humanity. And I think that even when we are denying, even if we're actively denying um, biblical truth, I think a lot of times it comes out just in it our just humanity. Makes sense. Yeah. So um, one way that, and this is gonna. I apologize in advance how vague this will be, but um, it's something that's been on my mind recently, actually, is the fact that uh, it's occurred to me that um, well, over the summer I went to a bunch or watched a bunch of movies aimed towards children with my younger cousins and contemporary movies come right. out that had come out in the past five years or so. And one thing that has occurred to me, and I'm not saying that children's movies are Christian by any stretch. But I'm saying that I'm noticing that in general, current cinema and TV that is directed towards adults is extremely depressing, irreverent, and or um, just generally nihilistic mm-hmm. about the world. Yeah, and definitely. even and that can and that takes the place. You know that occurs either in like you get these action films where like. There's like tons of violence and all that stuff, and then like the overall message is like everyone is crazy and like you gotta like kill the bad guys. So there's that, but then on the other hand, you also get these like comedies where like there's this sheen of humor on top, but underneath the overall message is that like life has no meaning and that's what's funny, you know, or whatever. It's kind of a dark humor, right? Or like people are fundamentally terrible, and like the the humor is that like. Everybody sucks. Like your ex-husband, your neighbor, you know, like all that stuff. I can't imagine why we have no hope. <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. So, right. So, uh, long story short, I have noticed, however, that for better or worse, a lot of, uh, and there are definitely some duds out there, but a lot of movies that are aimed towards children are still um, kind of surprisingly to me putting forth like really... Um, Positive, positive and encouraging values. Maybe Reverend um, Toller should have watched some of those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, and and uh, you know, positive and encouraging may be the tagline of K Love Radio. I was just but thinking. yeah, but I think that the um, but that that aside, oh, I think that like there sense. there are these lessons still being taught to children that are whether the filmmakers know it or not, and I tend to believe that they likely don't. Um, these lessons on how to be like a good person and how to forgive others and how to be open to others and not judge others. These are biblical messages. Sure. And I think that one thing that I've noticed, I guess, is that I, I really like kind of worry and not in like a cataclysmic way, but like I, I watch these young kids consuming these movies and hear them saying things like, oh, like, in the end, it was cool because he forgave the bad guy or whatever. You know, in these kids' movies, and they're like, that's awesome. In adult movies, they don't forgive the bad guy most of the no. time. <laughs> and and I think that there's... I think that there is... And I've actually heard among people my own age, when you do see something or, like, you know, read or whatever, uh, some sort of story where there is forgiveness or people that choose not to engage in some sort of sin or whatever those people are ridiculed, either right. in the movie or mm-hmm. by the people watching Yeah. Oh. And I think that the, um, in fact, I was just watching a show the other day, um, I'm 
binge watching the X Files on Amazon now. But anyway, yes. the um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I was just watching a show oh, the other day, yes. and there was a scene. Granted, this show came out in the '90s, which is a better time. But ultimately, there's you know a scene where a character chooses not to um, essentially have an affair, mm-hmm. and. I was watching with a number of people and like the the general vibe in the room was like, oh, that was dumb of him because no one ever would have found out, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think and I think that that's just the general feeling of America today. And so long story short, I know I've kind of gone aside no, here, but I think thoughts. that um, one thing that for all of us, whether we have children or not, I think that there are some really good things to be found in movies that are directed for children. Yeah. So uh, you know, don't don't uh, ignore it. Like if you hear that a movie's coming out that's like great and it's a kids movie, it might be worth checking out. What comes to well. mind is Inside Out. That was a really I interesting. Actually, haven't seen that one. Yeah. That was an interesting depiction yeah. of the different emotions and how um, that sort of plays out in the day to day. I thought mm. that was Absolutely. well handled. I mean, Coco. Coco. That's a great movie. Don't mention it. I'll cry. I know. <laughs> I know. I had to teach kindergartners last year and I was watching it and it was hilarious when you have like a bunch of kindergartners looking at you going like, Sir Barbara, why are you crying? I'm like, I'm not crying, I'm not crying. Move, move, move. Like, I'm yeah. <laughs> and all the teachers are like all the same age. Yeah, they were all yeah. the other like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cry, you crying. Yeah. And all the little kids are like, why are the thoughts yeah, crying? I love, I love both those movies. And it's worth mentioning the director of Inside Out is a Christian. Yeah. Well, look at that. Yeah, yeah, there you go. go. It's true. I think like, he also did. What else did he, he also did? He also did Up and Monsters Inc. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's oh, why. That, up, that explains a lot. That's why, yeah. Those films. are great movies. Yeah. 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 Those well, are good. One thing that he should come just, to a forefront event. Yeah, he should. <laughs> Mr. Doctor, come to forefront. Uh, you know, one thing, I, a tangible piece um, of that that's so interesting is uh, I was just talking with my wife about Disney movies and like what our favorite Disney movies are from you know any era of Disney, mm-hmm. and we came to the realization that in no matter when a Disney movie released, um, almost every time, the villain, or in whatever context of that movie, um, is never sort of, like, vengeance is never taken by the hero. Like, the hero, the, the, it, the villain may die or leave or whatever, but oh, it's not, cliff. yeah, often <laughs> yeah. they fall or, or it's some sort of, fallen. a lot of falling, no parents you know, fallen. yeah. It's like a god. Yeah. Got ordained, right? Right. But, but, like poetic justice. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't kill them. They fell. Yeah. And their, their death aside is, you know, their death aside though, the, the hero doesn't take that revenge. Right. And I find that so interesting because even children today, when you talk to children, they know that it's yeah. wrong to kill even the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And I think that adults, whether it's like our own negative experience or just general bitterness that comes with adulthood but like when I talk to adults about whether we should kill the bad guys usually they're pretty <laughs> <Get poor. them. laughs> yeah exactly so yeah so that's, that's yeah. interesting not to be too Good tangential um, I remember man a couple years ago when the reboot of Jurassic Park came out mm-hmm. with um, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard yeah, and Chris um, Pratt Chris Pratt, Pratt. Yeah. Jurassic World um, when that came out there was that scene where her assistant ends up just getting like brutalized by these mm-hmm. creatures and mm-hmm. devoured and there's such a communal sense from viewers that that was like uncomfortable to watch and some analysis that I've read about that is 
said that essentially that is uncomfortable to watch because there is no like sense of justice. Mm -hmm. And so usually whatever the character has done that is evil will amount to the severity of the death that they're given. And so in that she was this annoying, you know, uh, airheaded assistant who was not doing what she was assigned Mm -hmm. to do, but she gets this like awful demise and it's uncomfortable to watch for that yeah. reason. So we have this innate sense of justice. In most Disney movies, and even movies, I would say, up until the 90s, even yeah. into the 80s, the character, the villain's actions, their sinful actions or wrong actions often led them to their de- their demise. Yes. Yeah. Like Gaston and Beauty and the Beast. Like, sure. he wants to kill the beast, he kills the beast, and then all of a sudden his own pride makes him fall <laughs> off. Right, and, right. He Try falls off a cliff, you know? Like, Belle doesn't shoot him, like, you know? There's this innate yeah. sense of justice that, you know, is just divine, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. this yes. divine justice. The image of God in us longs to see wrongs put to right in the accordance to the severity of those yeah. wrongs. Yeah, and it's also a, it's also a subliminal... A, children watching these movies, like Beauty and the Beast, are being taught that there's a subliminal, like, you will one day pay the price for your actions. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, whether the beast pushes him off the cl- castle... You know, even if the beast doesn't, he's going to fall off the castle because right. he did bad things. Did bad things. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, yep. yeah. Nick, yeah. hey, what about you? So one one film that I saw uh, probably a couple years ago, it came out in 2016, was Hacksaw Ridge. Have you guys seen that? Oh, oh but yes. that yeah, that's direct in the sense that it was directed by Mel Gibson, and of course the main character like is a Christian and a pacifist. That's um, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so the, the thing that I liked about that movie, though, is basically it tells the story of a guy who you know, is a pacifist and, and goes into, into the army, and everybody makes fun of him because it's like, how can you be in the army and not have a gun? Um, it just doesn't make any sense. How can you be in the army and not kill people? And then he ends up saving a ton of people. And, and so it's, it's this very kind of you know, Christ-like act that he does. And what I love about that film is that it, it kind of turns the idea of a Pharisee on its head because everybody ridicules him almost like he's a Pharisee. Like he holds these beliefs that are so silly that you shouldn't, you shouldn't have weapons, you shouldn't kill people. Like he's such a Pharisee to have these kind of rules in his life. But then as the movie progresses, you see that like he's actually not the Pharisee. He's actually long-suffering, and the people who are the Pharisees are the people who want to kind of push him out mm-hmm. and aren't, aren't willing to accept that somebody with his beliefs could actually do something good and could actually have some kind of positive impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I really like that because it, I think it forces us to kind of look at um, – who, who we kind of see as pharisaical and who we tend to write off. And I think it encourages us to kind of look beyond that and say, you know, who, who is actually being Christ-like? And, you know, I'm not a pacifist myself, but as I look at him, I say, okay, that's like, he's really living out his beliefs, including that one, in a way that's very Christ-like. And so I, for me, that was a powerful movie. Definitely. I love that one. I sobbed. That was good. I did. I mean, I can't complain. I cried too. Yeah, I definitely got in that mm-hmm. movie. Speaking of Christian themes, I just remembered Andrew Garfield's in that. Yeah. And, uh, if you haven't seen Silence starring Andrew Garfield oh, I know. and uh, mm-hmm. Adam Driver, uh, that's going to be a future episode. Yeah, we'll talk about that. I could talk about that for an hour. But, uh, yeah. This is a movie I, I, was, I just watched. I have it here, but I watched it earlier this year at Eternity's Gate. Um, mm. It's about William Defoe, who is in Last Temptation. 
Oh, I think he's he's not, he's not a Hacksaw Ridge, is he? No. Mm-hmm. But he's but uh, Andrew Garfield does play Spider-Man, and Willem Dafoe plays Dafoe a Spider-Man like, villain in another movie. Right, it's like seven degrees of like William Dafoe here. Yeah. But, uh, I know, like, uh, so William Dafoe played Vincent Van Gogh, uh, and it's actually a very interesting portrayal of Van Gogh because it really depicts more his Christian hmm. values because he was. I mean, here's a man who was he was a missionary. His father was a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor. Like he literally grew up in the church. You know, he was too much of a zealot of Christian of, of Christianity that the, his own the, the when he was a missionary, they said you cannot be part of the people. You have to be separate of the people. You know, and he's like, no, no, I have to be just like Christ. And uh, it shows that aspect of his faith. Also, it kind of changes the new historical narrative. A lot of historians believe that. Van Gogh did not kill himself. He actually was accidentally murdered by uh, two teenagers who were playing around with guns and dressing up like American cowboys. Yeah, that's actually, they have a lot of, there's a recent book that came out about 10 years ago and they actually found evidence of it because one of the kids actually said it in the 40s. He was recorded by another historian, but then nobody by then wanted to, that story to be heard because everyone wanted the myth of Van Gogh being the tortured artist who killed himself and the whole Liberty Valance, you know, when the truth becomes legend, mm-hmm. print the print the legend mm-hmm. and that's what happened to Van Gogh and they depict that in the movie but they depict when he's doing art, when he's painting, when he's out in the fields as if he's in a meditative worship. Like mm-hmm. he literally is being transported and he's saying he's being transported to like he's having these conversations with God and, he, and it's like to me, it was like, oh, finally, you know, we, like, we can look at this artist and lift him up as a Christian painter, you know, as he deserves to be, because his writings talk about his faith, his paintings talk about the faith, you know, he uses biblical references in almost all of his paintings, you know, even towards the one towards the end. And it's just like, you're sitting there going like, okay, this is so beautiful. And I, it's funny, because it's done by an atheist director who can kind of be, a, you know, just egotistical and arrogant artist, but... He understood that Van Gogh is, this is part of his life. Yeah. You know, and I think like that was very unique because usually every time you see Van Gogh, he's the tortured schizophrenic mm-hmm. madman running through the fields and painting, yeah. you know, like they show that too. Mm-hmm. But, you know. <laughs> There's a welcome other dimension. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's a very interesting line in it. You have a priest um, interviewing, uh, like talking to Van Gogh in the men's institution, and he, you know, he's like, you know, he, he's like he's talking about Christ, and he's you know Van Gogh looks at the priest and is like, well, Christ wasn't accepted in his own lifetime as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're just sitting there like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd really like to check that out. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Go online and rent it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming and having this conversation with us. I feel like this was awesome. Yeah, I cannot wait. Thanks for having us. I cannot wait to tune in to not only the first performed episode, but every consecutive episode so that's the Sacred Obscura yeah it's gonna be awesome so yeah check out the podcast Sacred Obscura on Spotify iTunes and the link here at ForefrontFestival.com yeah. Forefront Festival speaking of which I think there's something coming up Nate would you like to there is episode? indeed yes we're sponsored today by ourselves Forefront Festival <laughs> we, have an, <laughs> we have an event coming up called the Forefront Festival Meetup it's at Grace Road Church on November 2nd so go to ForefrontFestival.com. You can learn more about it. It's going to be an incredible event where 
We're going to get to discuss uh, issues of faith and art. There's going to be an onstage interview. There's going to be an incredible music performance. There's going to be an art gallery. It's going to be a great time to hang out with uh, people who care about these things, such as Abby Sitterly and Jason Barber. Uh, we'll be there. there. You can meet them at the Forefront yes. Festival. You got 19. <laughs> I'll bring headshots. You can, I can sign autographs. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. There will also be delicious coffee from Imprint Coffee Roasting and food as well. So yes. You're going to want to be there November 2nd. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Adios from all of us here at Forefront Festival. We'll see you all next time.